Prepare to turn right. for this one because normally I hear myself in my ears like with my headphones I do not hear myself right now so I'm just gonna take the headphones off which I usually do anyway and then we're just gonna pray that the audio is good everything is good because I hate when the audio is bad I hate when like you hear like the mic moving you hear like weird noises like that would be the thing that I wanted the most was like I wanted the audio quality to be good when I did this so like right now like my audio levels are super low so I'm kind of nervous but it's fine. We're just going to go for it. Um, we're just going to pray. Um, y- yeah, we're just going to pray. Okay. So before we start, I need to give like a little short apology because when I did an episode when I was home back in April, I said at the end of that episode, like, guys, I have my whole next episode planned out. Like, I'm so excited about it. It's going to be great. I have all these whatever ideas. And I did, like, that wasn't a lie, I had a whole plan, and I actually started making an outline, I started my research, I started taking notes, I was ready to record it, and then I just ran out of time, which is the same thing, by the way, that happened when, at the end of the summer, last summer, when I had my last episode planned out before the school year started, and that one was a great episode, I was so excited about it, I was going to talk about, like, how play stupid games win stupid prizes basically and with all the crises how people are making stupid decisions in the government and then not like being all surprised when consequences of those decisions come to light i was so excited it was gonna be so good i had so many examples but it's okay because maybe we'll do that episode another time i think i don't know if i solved the notes but well definitely that concept comes up a lot but so the same thing happened again back in April so we are not going to be talking about the things that I said we were going to be talking about which is the shooting a couple other things and instead we're going to be talking about something totally unrelated so but before we do that obviously we need to talk about Trump for literally two seconds and I've already like explained my whole thing with Trump at the end of the last episode so I'm no obligation to address it again I didn't have an obligation the first time, but I felt like I had to, but he was indicted again, and it's just such a mess, and I really don't care, and I'm just disengaging from this whole narrative, this whole conversation. I'm so done with him. You all know my thoughts about it if you listened to the last episode. You also know my thoughts on the election, who I want to win, all all that stuff. Um, anyways, so we're not going to go into it, but I just want to say, like, it's obviously politicized, but I do think Trump obviously has not done things exactly the way he should and has not handled himself the way he always should have handled himself but it's obviously politicized and i'm gonna say about it so we're just gonna leave that we all have different thoughts it really doesn't matter i don't think that's the most important thing that we need to be addressing right now which brings me into what we are going to be discussing today which is the european border migrant crisis and Okay, so I have an official reason and an unofficial reason why I'm talking about this. So we're going to give like the unofficial, which is like the real reason I decided to talk about it first, and then I'll actually get into the segues, which are my like official reasons where if someone asked me and I wanted to sound like I actually thought this through more than just, oh, decision that I just wanted to do this, then that's what I would say. So the unofficial reason 
is that I really was just like thinking a lot about Europe lately. I spent some time in different parts of Europe. I'm not acting like I'm like this like world traveler. No, but like I hadn't been to Europe before this past year. And then I had some friends who like went to different parts of Europe after we ended our school year, um, Italy, France. And I was just like, it just got me like Europe was just on my mind lately. And obviously my mind is like on a bigger political issue 24-7. So I was just thinking and I was thinking about this crisis that like I just haven't heard a lot about lately. But it just, it it's obviously still a problem and I just haven't been hearing about it. And I decided that this was something I had to research. And then I found the unofficial or like the official reasons, which are like, the more professional sounding reasons why I'm talking about this because it did become relevant in the news. So I was already having this idea for this episode and then I was looking on Spotify and then I saw that Allie Beth Stuckey, she's fantastic. She had a new episode of her podcast out and I was like, oh, let me just look. And she, in this podcast, I read the description. I was like, oh my gosh, this fits perfectly into what I want to talk about. And this gives me a, an excuse to talk about it because she had mentioned this story so of course I immediately looked it up so we're gonna use this story as a segue into our larger topic and I don't want you to think I'm insinuating anything by this story because it is about a migrant committing violent acts and I don't want anyone to just assume that that is my only opinion on the topic sorry about that only opinion on the topic and that I just think oh yeah no migration because they're violent obviously I don't think that and my opinion is much more nuanced which you're going to see very clearly it's much more nuanced than I even realized going into this so I don't want to like you think I'm insinuating I genuinely just had this and thought it would be a good segue so let's get into it so there's this is the story where basically um, a homeless Syrian man in his 30s was a chart this is from the article charged with attempted murder and detained in France on Saturday this was a few weeks ago in connection with a violent stabbing attack this past week that involved two adults and four young children prosecutors said so basically there's this Syrian man he was a migrant so he was from Syria and now was living in France and he went on this stabbing rampage in a park in France and he hurt two adults and four young children um, they're not releasing his name right now, but all we know about him is that he w- sought asylum in Sweden. Again, we're getting into all of these things later. He sought asylum, so he was escaping Syria, where there's bloody civil war going on for years. He sought asylum. Basically, he asked for protection, kind of. That's what that kind of is. We're going to get into definitions, all that. In Sweden, it was accepted. He was allowed to be in Sweden, and then he lived there for a decade, still as a child there I'm assuming he's not the primary caretaker of this child because then he left and went to France and we're not really sure why um where his asylum in 2013 he got to Sweden and then he left and went to France in 2022 and his asylum uh, request was not accepted in France which makes sense because he already had gotten asylum in Sweden he had no reason that he needed to seek asylum in France he already was in Sweden but anyways so he was basically in a park and he attacked um, a bunch of people four of them were children aged three or younger a French boy and a French girl a British girl who was on vacation in France a Dutch girl and then two adults no one is dead they thank god all survived and are not in critical condition anymore but This is basically all we know about this Syrian refugee. He's in his 30s. He went went to Sweden and then went to France. And 
this is basically all we know. He really we are not sure about his like mental state. It does not appear, according to initial reports, that he had any serious, any serious issues in that regard. Um, sorry, he it was just there was no evidence of any clear like delusions that he was suffering. But no one's obviously sure yet. But so that was basically the story that set this whole thing off, and that just got me further thinking about this migrant crisis in Europe of these refugees from all these different countries coming to Europe and what how does that process work what are the ramifications of that and then as I was researching like literally I was on my laptop researching this and I saw like on Yahoo News or like whatever comes up when you and click and you tap open all the news stories that pop up and I saw another story and this was just pure like luck that I saw this I think I would have seen it eventually anyway but I saw it early enough in my research to include it and it's just another example of how this migrant crisis is still relevant today. And then we're going to obviously get into the actual topic. So the headline was 78 dead, and that toll might be higher now. 78 dead, 104 rescued in deadliest shipwreck, shipwreck off Greece this year. So I'd be wondering, how does a random shipwreck in Greece have to do with the migrant crisis? Well, because this was a migrant ship carrying migrants into Europe. So probably the death toll is going to go up because um, there are different reports of how many people were on this ship. These were all migrants trying to get into Europe. So the reports are somewhere between 400 and 750. No one's exactly sure how many because, again, this is all very disorganized, which is a major thing we're going to get into. Most of the passengers were young men, according to these reports. Some were women and children, which makes sense. I'm just going to mention this here because it makes sense here, but... Generally, the people who are seeking asylum in the EU are young single men, which makes sense because this is not an easy journey, which we're going to get into all of that. It's not an easy journey, and it's much easier if you are younger, if you're a man, single, strong, um, also have the money because a lot of times you're paying these traffickers. We talked about this. I think it was in episode one where I did a whole segment on the migrant crisis at the the border crisis basically coming into the U.S., on the U.S.-Mexico border and the chaos that is that. I want to do another episode on it because there is so much to say, but it's kind of a similar idea that you are paying traffickers to get into to whatever place it is you're trying to get into. Similar idea, so definitely money is an aspect of that. So it makes sense that more of them are going to be men. So just according to some stats, just so you can have some context for that idea, um, people who are making applying to for asylum, who are basically seeking refuge from different issues in their countries into the EU, they are majority male. Sixty-five percent are male. Thirty-eight point three percent of women, and then so sixty-five percent are men. And then just a stat on the women who are coming, which I guess would make thirty-five um, percent would be women. And then of those women, thirty-eight point three are younger than eighteen. So that basically means children. Um, most of the most of the applicants in general, though, are 18 to 34. So you're in that range where you are strong enough for this journey, which again makes sense. Um, okay, so let's talk more about this ship for a second. This ship was cu- going from Libya to Italy, and we're going to get into different routes that these migrant ships typically take. So you'll be able to contextualize that. But imagine Libya, which is in northern Africa, into Italy, right? Which right on the coast there, and this just kind of highlights this idea that Greece, because this is where this shipwreck was, it was like off the coast of Greece, this Greece has been at the heart of this crisis because it basically offers a way into the EU. If you picture a map of Europe, I wanted to do a video cast for this one because then you could really see everything I'm saying when I say Libya and when I say Greece and I can point to where 
these different cities are and point to the different routes the migrants are taking, especially because I love geography. So it would have been so fun, but I thought that was just too much effort. I had to get a camera that would look normal. I'd have to dress normally. Right now it's uh, 3.30 in the morning and I just don't look functional at 3.30 in the morning. So it would not have worked, but maybe in the future if I get high tech enough and I have time and space for that, then great. Right now you're just going to have to imagine in your mind how once, if you're able to get to Greece, you can then just travel on land to wherever it is you're going, you're going, but Greece is right on that, on that coast, right? So that's just something you should keep in mind that that's why this shipwreck was by Greece, because that's the kind of the way you get to all these places. Um, Okay, so now, now that we have these two stories in our minds that highlight two different aspects of the European migrant crisis, we're just going to keep those in the back of our mind. And then hopefully by the end of this episode, you can fully contextualize those stories because I think context and nuance is so important because when you just have one news story and you use it as an example through which to view an entire issue and you boil it down to that one idea, you lose a lot of nuance and you lose a lot of context. You lose a lot of the rich depth that these issues and these these problems, all these different things that they desperately need. So just keep those stories in the back of your mind and then we're going to use all this information that I'm going to be presenting because this is a very information heavy episode and it's going to be long. I'm warning you, but I promise it's going to be good. It's going to be interesting. I have so much information to share and so many resources you can check out on your own. So please stay with me also because I have a really important message at the end that I want to share. So just stay with me. Um, So what was I saying? Yes, I was saying that hopefully we're going to use these everything we're going to be discussing to to properly contextualize and properly understand these stories in again all the nuance and all of the depth that these stories require the prism to view them through so we're going to start at the very beginning so people in these countries primarily they're coming from the middle east asia a little bit but we're not really going to be focusing on asia so much and africa that's where they're asia we're going to do a little bit and, and sorry in the middle east and asia i don't know which one i just said but Middle East and Africa we're going to be focusing on the most but also parts of Asia so why are they leaving what is causing this surge in migration why are they leaving the countries they are in and going to Europe so in order to understand that we need to look at which countries they're coming from so the height of this crisis was in 2015-2016 like when people think of the migrant crisis it was 2015-2016 was the disaster and there's a lot of reasons we're still going to be talking about it because it's still relevant today as we see by these two stories, clearly it's still relevant today. And also it's just important, there's just an, people just like to lose this today, but there is an inherent value in studying the past because it will pretty much always have some ramifications on the future, even if the crisis was done, which it is not. Even if you were to argue that the crisis was basically over and that migration has lowered a lot, those ramifications will be felt inevitably. So let's look at the countries people were coming from at the height of the crisis, 2015. And these numbers have changed a little bit, probably, with the come with the years after 2015. But just studying the height of the crisis can help us understand how it has then gone in into future years. So, and this is just into the EU. So the top one was Syria. Makes sense. They had a bloody civil war. We're going to get into the issues that cause people to migrate. But just let's do the countries really quick. So the top one is Syria, then Afghanistan, Iraq, Kosovo. Albania, Pakistan, Eritrea, Nigeria, Iran, and Ukraine. So if we were to just imagine all these on a map, we have um, Syria, 
in the Middle East, Afghanistan, which is not, it's not in the Middle East, but kind of like closer to the Middle East than it is to like what you think of as Asia. Um, Iraq, Middle East, right? You have that. Kosovo, which is in Europe. Albania is also in Europe. Um, then we have Pakistan, Eritrea, which is in Africa, Nigeria in Africa, Iran, right? Kind of near the Middle East and Ukraine, which is European. So that's also just the EU stats. Keep that in mind. This isn't worldwide migration because if you were to factor in the entire world, Venezuela would be like number three, right? Venezuela is a country that is falling to pieces still with the socialist government over there. So this is, we're just focusing on the EU. If, again, I want to do another one on the, the U.S.-Mexico border because every day I just like get more involved in that. And every day I just see another story just like frustrates me so much like I I'm clenching my fist right now if, if you could see me anyway but we're not talking about that and just stay on topic because this is already going to be long so let's talk about why these people are leaving these countries Syria Afghanistan all these countries and just also keep in mind that again this is 2015 stats so when we say Afghanistan and Ukraine those obviously bring up a lot of emotions and a lot of knowledge because of what's happened in recent years there but keep in mind this was 2015 so this was before the height of the issues there, even though those countries were not great places to be even then. So generally, when we talk about migration, there's going to be push factors and pull factors, which basically means push factors are why are you leaving a place and pull factors is why you do want to come to this specific place. So like I want the push factor is war, let's say, and then the pull factor is no war, right? Or a good economy from bad economy, whatever it may be. And I just want to, I don't know why I'm mentioning this now, but just in my notes, I wrote in all caps, mentioned, because I, I just like when I read this idea and studied it a little bit, I just thought of this like, kind of philosophical idea and I just decided that I'm not just, I'm not going to filter myself. Like, of course I am and I need to stay on topic to some degree, but there are so many things I want to say that I just, why not just say them? So I wrote in all caps, mentioned, so... I wrote that this is actually a fascinating philosophical discussion is people do people run from things or do they run to things or is it a combination of both is it neither is it something else entirely and because if you study this you can also study this in terms of anything in terms of elections do people vote for things or do they vote against things were people in 2020 running away from Trump or were they running toward Biden I would argue they're running away from Trump and Biden was just the inevitable result of running away from Trump because there were two options. Um, but that's an interesting thing to consider, right? Because if you study elections, again, it generally tends to be that people vote against things and then the other option is just inevitably what they end up with. But it's just interesting to think about. So if we were to think about that, let's say re-election, it gives me a little bit of hope because people really don't like Biden, so they will run away from him. The question is, is will they will what what the other option is be something they want to run toward? Because I think if it's Trump, they'll want to run away from Trump as well, and it might end up getting Biden reelected. But I think DeSantis presents a strong pull factor. I'm just kind of giving a metaphor or a simile kind of of this idea in a different context. So again, it's just fascinating to consider. Just think about that. You know, when you look at something, are people running away from something or running towards something or both? Just interesting to consider. I don't know. It's it's really not like any, it's not relevant to what we're talking about. I just thought it was interesting. So I decided to mention it. So let's talk about some of those pull factors and push factors that, um, that cause people to leave their country and go somewhere else. So the first thing is obviously going to be persecution, right? Persecution because of your ethnicity, your religion, your race, your politics your culture 
those can all push someone to leave their country. Um, so that would be things like war, different conflicts, government persecution. So a war, right, let's say, or um, a place where somewhere like Nigeria where Christians are persecuted. Different things that were, you're, you're being oppressed, you're being harmed or in danger in some way in your country. That is a pull, That is a push factor that is pushing you out of where you are. And then the pull factor is you're going to be, you're going to want to settle in liberal, right? And it's kind of approaches to acceptance and it's approaches to not persecuting people. So that would be a major pull factor. And you're more likely to move to these safest countries. So in these cases, the migrants are typically, you would think, going to want to settle in just whatever is safe for them, right? They aren't necessarily caring about the quality of life as much as this next category, because they're going to want to just really go to a place where they are safe and not being persecuted and oppressed by a government or anything similar to that. So that's really what we would consider humanitarian migrants. These are migrants who are escaping a genuine humanitarian conflict. The next category is going to be people who are economic migrants or people really who are just escaping poor labor standards, um, high unemployment. Their economy is just not healthy. Maybe they don't have a job. Maybe they're very poor. So that's going to be a push factor, causing them to leave their country. And then that pull factor is going to be, let's me go to a country where there's the opposite. I have higher wages. I have better unemployment. I have a higher standard of living, of better education. So um, people are going to basically migrate, not necessarily to the closest safe country, but to a country where they feel they'll have a better economic environment, where they'll have a job, they'll have more money, and that's going to be a pull factor. So the next category is going to be people who are um, migrating because of environmental issues. So if there was a big earthquake or if there was a flood or a hurricane, that one in itself creates kind of a push factor from a country. But also think about how that affects the economy of a country, right? That's going to cause a lot of people to lose their jobs. It's going to cause the all people to lose money. And because of that, that's also kind of going to, I guess, be tied to an economic issue, but not always because you might generally just have lost your house or feel that you are not in a safe place because the environment or the weather conditions are very extreme. So that is just one another reason. And the pull factor is obviously going to be somewhere where that is not an issue. And just one example of that that wasn't really like in any article I was reading was just something that I thought of that reminded me of that was in Haiti, right? had that big 2010 earthquake and one thing that it did was it completely just eradicated their economy completely just everyone was terrible people lost jobs people did not really have any life there anymore so a lot of people then went to South America to find work and that's just kind of a side point but I just thought I would mention it I'm just constantly thinking of the the U.S. Mexico border just makes me so angry we, we need to get a president in there who will do something about it um anyways so um that's why when you hear on the news that a lot of these migrants coming in through the mexico border to the u.s are haitian which you would think is confusing because what's closest what's the closest part of the u.s to haiti that's florida right so why are they not coming through florida and one reason is is because a lot of them are haitian but they actually moved after the earthquake to South America and then from South America eventually came up through Mexico to the U.S. So that's just one thing you can just keep in the back of your mind. I don't know why I'm mentioning it here. I just thought I would. 
because why not? Um, so those are going to be some of the general conditions. But now we want to examine totally what are the specifics for these specific countries that we mentioned that I listed before. So let's talk about what really sparked all this war and conflict in the Middle East and in Africa. So that's something called the Arab Spring. Maybe you've heard of the Arab Spring. Um, it definitely is, was a very big thing when it happened back in 2010, 2011. Um, huge, just upheaval in that part of the world some good some a lot of bad um but essentially what it was was just a series of uprisings in these different arab countries so like in the middle east and in northern africa um that sought to overthrow totalitarian autocratic governments that were very oppressive so it all started in tunisia which was under the autocratic rule of zine al abedin ben ali who was the ruler, um, president, but like the like totalitarian leader of Tunisia at the time. So then it all really started with one man, as a lot of these things do. Um, a lot of a lot of change can be started with one person doing one thing, for good or for bad. You know, it's just interesting to think about how like one thing can spark an entire a movement. You know, whether it's like Archduke Franz Ferdinand, like his assassination, just being the this spark that obviously there were longer long-term issues but being the spark of world war one it's just interesting to think about how like what would have things had been different you know like how would things have played out and, it's, and there probably would have been another cause but it's just just interesting to think about i don't know like why i'm thinking about this but like a lot of these things like i read in my notes like mentioned this year um but i i genuinely did not even write that down i just thought of it um so started on December 17th, 2010, there was a street vendor named Muhammad Bouazizi, and basically he had, like, his vegetable car, and then he eventually had all his vegetables taken away, and he was just humiliated in public by the Tunisian authorities because he didn't have the proper licensing for his cart, so it wasn't, like, pay a fee. It was, like, let me take all your livelihood away and embarrass you in public. Um, not great, so... As a form of protest, he stood outside the the like the building of the local governor of where he was, and he lit himself on fire, and that was like his form of protest. And then he died later in the hospital on January fourth, two thousand eleven, and he basically became a martyr for the whole Arab Spring, a martyr for this whole movement. His whole country saw this and was inspired by it, and the country just fell into chaos of trying to overthrow this um this autocratic ruler who did things like this and then eventually on january um sorry eventually um so the chaos had started on january 11th so ben ali the president fled the country and that's kind of the general narrative i want to mention one thing that i did notice in my research there's a few years ago these clips from bbc that supposedly are recordings of phone calls between ben ali and different leaders in his government basically suggesting that he intended to come back he he basically was going to drop his family off in Saudi Arabia where it was safer and then come right back um so there are some recordings that suggest that perhaps that was what it was some people say the recordings are faked some people say they are authentic so it's just interesting to um consider that perhaps he did not intend to flee he intended to just drop his family off and then come back and then his pilot just flew away without him and then he was just stuck there till he died but um it's just one thing to consider but definitely would not have been safe if he had come back um his country was in chaos people hated him so 
basically that was just considered a success. People celebrated that. And then the thing about this is that this revolution, obviously this was in the age of technology. This was in the age of social media coming up and being a major kind of aspect that impacted world politics and impacted revolutions. Because if you think about revolutions in the past and it was a totally different playing field because now we have this mode of spreading an idea. Think about Masa Amini where her death sparked an entire worldwide movement. It wasn't just in one country. It was able to spread because of social media and people posting videos of the brutality that was going on. It's just interesting to think about how movements change because of new modes of communication. Communication obviously plays a huge role in this. So on social media, this spread, and then soon other Arab nations started their own protests. And over the coming weeks, you had protests in Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Oman, Kuwait, Bahrain, Egypt, Sudan, Libya, Algeria, Morocco, a lot of countries. Those are all in Middle East and Northern Africa. And most of them didn't actually result in regime changes. So in Egypt, the president stepped down and the videos of the celebration of that president stepping down, like crazy and kind of terrifying. It's just more people than you can imagine in one place on the streets it's kind of scary like it's just the sheer amount of people and there was like fires and like celebrations people screaming and dancing and singing in the street and it's just that amount of people just makes me anxious oh my gosh um it was a lot of people just in case you didn't get that um and then in Yemen and Libya they both overthrew their governments whereas Egypt he stepped down this case, Yemen and Libya, they were actually forced out. And there was no other leadership changes in any of the countries I listed besides for these four, Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, and Libya. So the problem is that a revolution isn't necessarily going to cause good results, right? Think about the French Revolution where, yeah, they got what they wanted. They got to overthrow the monarchy, but the results were not great. You ended up having an oppressive regime who was chopping off heads left and right, left and right. And one thing that I guess can impact that is what are you fighting for? Like you have this objective, you want to overthrow totalitarianism, but what are you going to replace it with? What is your idea? Is it just about like sheer, just getting rid of a government? You have to have a game plan because if not, your country is just going to fall into the wrong hands again and going to fall into chaos. Um, so, and that, I guess it's kind of interesting because you think about the American Revolution and how successful that was, and we were fighting for something, right? We were fighting for the um, we we're fighting for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and we had these notions of all men created equal. And when you're fighting on that, then I guess you have a game plan. I don't really know. I'm not a historian. I don't know how historically accurate any of these philosophies or these concepts are, but that's just kind of where my brain goes automatically, right? Is are you just fighting? to get rid of something do you have a plan of what's going to happen afterward so a lot of these uprisings and these revolutions didn't bring about positive changes in fact especially this made it especially bad many of these different protests were co-opted by isis by these um religious extremists these islamists who were part of the revolution because they didn't like i guess these secular totalitarian governments they had their own ideas so then after these revolutions ended, a lot of these ISIS fighters were able to gain able to gain power and influence in these countries. So places like Syria and Iraq, that happened. And you can just see how our revolution is not inherently a good thing. It depends what you are fighting against, but also what you're fighting for and who is are the people fighting and do they have good intentions or 
are these groups being co-opted by religious fanatics who are going to cause negative changes in the country as a result? So just a quote that kind of, I guess, exemplifies this whole, really encapsulates this whole idea from an article. While the Arab Spring revealed how fast a revolution fueled by technology could unfold, it also once again proved how complicated and unpredictable revolutions can be. So really, that kind of just gives you this sense of, it taught us a lot about, like, in the positive sense about how technology can impact something, but also it taught us a lot about <laughs> what a revolution and what is it inherently a good thing and some of the downsides of that. So because of this, a lot of conflict went on in these different countries for years, rival factions, different people fighting for power and fighting in oppressing others. So places like Yemen, Libya, and Syria, they all faced civil wars because of the Arab Spring. And other countries also just deteriorated in many, many different aspects because of the Arab Spring. So because of that, you see how the Arab Spring was caused a lot of these issues that are causing to this day people to flee these countries. This conflict, these conflicts have been going on in these countries for the past 10 years, right? Or more. So that's some of those countries, but that doesn't include all of the countries on that top 10 list or all the countries that people are coming from. So just a briefly, I want to say um some of the some of the other like reasons people are coming from countries that were not included in the arab spring so for example albania that's in europe so there was a lot of instability in albania back in the 90s but it's not really such an issue now to to a certain extent um there's just a lot of poverty it's one of the poorer countries in europe and i don't think you could really compare it to like the middle of africa but it's definitely just not a great place to be as europe goes so that's just one. Um, so there's a lot of ec- migration, probably a lot of economic migration from there. Kosovo, there's a lot of conflict. Basically, Kosovo became a country in back in 2008. It's one of the second newest country, um, second only to South Sudan, which was in 2011. Um, but it basically was part of Serbia, and then it became its own country in 2008. Serbia still does not recognize it. Serbia still claims that it is part of their own their country part of serbia so there's a lot of conflict between in like fighting between kosovo and serbia so that's definitely a big reason eritrea has a lot of conflict with sorry a lot of conflict with ethiopia they share a border so there's a lot of conflict on that border um pakistan there's a lot of internal conflict different factions different groups in pakistan a lot of oppression there as well as a lot of conflict with india they share a border especially in the Kashmir region. If you like that name rings a bell, that there's a lot of fighting between India and Pakistan in that region. Nigeria, um, there's a lot of issues in Nigeria. It's very complex. There's like, you can't really find one core reason that explains most of the migration from there. It's just kind of a mess in Nigeria, not a great place to be. And then Ukraine, you and we would think Ukraine war makes sense, which of course today is true. But um, back then in 2015, that war hadn't started yet. So um, definitely there was still a lot of uprisings in Ukraine, a lot of insurgency, was it a lot of conflict in Ukraine even back then? Same thing with Afghanistan. Again, you think, oh, makes sense, Taliban controls it. Taliban wasn't in control of Afghanistan back in 2015, but there was still a lot of conflict with the Taliban. The Taliban definitely was not, was still kicking back then. Um, they were not, they, it wasn't like they suddenly popped out of nowhere. Obviously, we say this came out of nowhere when I could do a whole episode about that. Maybe I will for like the the anniversary when it comes up in August of the U.S. leaving. I actually have like a short presentation on that that I did for school. So like a 10 to 12 minute presentation. So maybe I'll do that. And then I'll do a separate episode. Because 
oh my gosh, that made my blood boil. That whole situation was just a complete disaster and embarrassment for the U.S. on the world stage. But anyway, um, they didn't pop out of nowhere, even though the kind of takeover came sort of out of nowhere. Um, but we had, they had a lot of conflict with the Taliban back then even, and there's a lot of poverty in Afghanistan. Again, just not a great place to be. So those different ideas, Arab Spring, poverty, different conflicts, insurgencies, that can explain a lot of the um, just reasons people are leaving and coming to Europe. And back in, but by 2015, so again, the height of the crisis was 2015, 2016. So back then, um, over a quarter of Syrians had been displaced. That just kind of is a stat that can put everything into perspective that over one-fourth of the entire country had had to flee their home because of the fighting in Syria, which is, like, when you think of, like, the most bloody, like, conflict going on right now, like, what civil war is just takes up the most of the media and just is, I mean, you probably see Ukraine now, but, like, meaning, like, what has objectively been the most horrific, you would say, Syria. I think every reasonable person would say what's well, been going on in Syria back then when it was talked about a lot and now when it's not on the news every day as much it's so sad um so I think you have to just keep that in your mind because my goal here is not to come across with one ideology it's to show you that there's a lot of different nuance to this and saying that it's all economic migration because you have to pay or on that people aren't really that desperate because you have to pay traffickers you have to have some amount of money and then it's really just a lot of economic migration which is of course true but it's not all economic migration so saying it all is just really not necessary people really don't have to leave and then also saying that the opposite that every single person is literally a Syrian who had to run away from their home that's also not true so I just think you have to keep these ideas in mind it's just important to know the facts right so that is just some of these different facts that you should just keep in your mind as we start to contextualize and get through all these different nuanced ideas it's just something you have to just remember so now before we start talking about the actual numbers of people who migrated and the European response initially to this migration back in 2015-2016 at the height of the crisis we need to give a couple definitions. So we're going to be kind of talking about migration. We're going to be talking about is what's called irregular migration, which is people who are crossing international borders without official permission or vi- they violating residency conditions. So basically, these are people who are asylum seekers, which asylum seeking is we're going to get into the next definition. But it's basically like you are um, you're facing harm or d- danger in your country. So you're leaving and asking basically for safety in another country. Um, people who are another type of irregular migration, people who are economic vi- um, migrants, they're basically they're coming into a country where they don't have a visa, they don't have like official permission to be there, um, they don't have like official asylum status yet, so they just basically are coming into a country and violating rules in doing that, um, they're coming without a visa, they're coming without official permission, they're coming without having gained asylum status, um, yeah. That's a basically what it is. So you would call it illegal. People will say like, oh, it's not really illegal because they're going to then seek asylum and the EU rules we're going to get into later. But the EU rule is basically that if you're seeking asylum, you should go to the first safe country and seek asylum there. Um, but again, so really like it's illegal, but like also I don't want to say that and get in trouble because like technically the EU like says you can seek asylum. That's a concept that exists. 
Um, obviously, I think that if someone is safe, they should seek asylum where they are safe. And if that is before they enter Europe, they should do that. And obviously, I think it's hard because there's so much backlog. But I, I think it's just really a complicated issue. So I just wanted to put that out there. The next definition is what is asylum? Asylum is a form of protection available to anyone at risk of serious harm in their home country who must leave in search of safety in another country. So when we say that someone is seeking asylum, they are facing some kind of danger or persecution in their country. So they are leaving and then they go basically ask for safety in another country and they're either going to be accepted or they're going to be rejected in that country. Like we said with the example at the beginning of that Syrian migrant who had fled Syria sought asylum in Sweden and then been accepted and then he went to France and was rejected so that's just kind of two different outcomes you can also just be pushed for pushed back like they won't accept or reject they'll just like push it off and put it into their backlog there's so much backlog in the system which is definitely a thing that needs to be fixed which just plays into the idea of how much chaos there is all these border crises it's just the root of it is just so much disorganization and so much chaos and it's just so sad um, so let's talk about numbers. So since 2009, 3.4 million irregular migrants, which again, these asylum seekers, these are economic migrants without a visa, no, no permission to be there, all that. They have all entered the EU, EU's the European Union, and again, they're coming on flimsy boats, like the second story showed, by sea, or they're crossing land borders if they're coming from a place where you can access Europe by land. So, um... The immigration crisis really started to ramp up. Again, we're just going through numbers right now. Immigration crisis from the Middle East and Africa to the EU started to ramp up early in 2011, mostly because, again, if you think Syria is the number one place people are coming from, and that was when the conflict in Syria started, so that makes sense. And then it peaked in 2015 and then was pretty big in 2016 also, and then started to slowly decrease but it's still a crisis i would argue so in 2015 one this numbers are different depending on which source you look at but this is one source for one million people came in um in 2015 and then over 800,000 of them so that's a big amount had been trafficked from turkey to greece so that's a big route is you get to turkey and then turkey you take a ship to greece and then from greece you move on to wherever you need to move on to and all the rest, almost all the rest, besides for that 800,000, had come through Italy, right? Um, so we talked about with that ship that had gone from Libya was going to Italy. Um, or they come through Spain, um, which if you think about like in the context of Europe's borders, that kind of makes sense. You have one kind of further um, east, one more in the middle, and then one further um, west, which kind of makes sense depending on where you're coming from. We're going to get into specifically where they're coming from. So... Let's do that. And then most people aren't really staying in Greece. Um, they're moving on from Greece to other European countries. The two biggest where you see this crisis unfolding is Germany and Sweden. And then to a lesser extent, you have France, you have um, other other European countries. But really, you're seeing the height of the crisis. And a lot of the stats and a lot of the examples we're going to use later in this episode are going to come from Germany and Sweden because that was just where the crisis unfolded the most because of their policies so let's talk about which countries people are coming from and which routes they're going to use so if you're coming from syria iraq or afghan or afghanistan so they're either going to come um overland through the balkans or they're going to come through the mediterranean which is going to go to turkey and then they're going to go to greece which like we said before that is like the main you think of like migration to europe you think 
Turkey, Greece, Europe, which Greece is part of Europe. But you think Turkey, Greece, and then other parts of Europe. And then people from sub-Saharan Africa, they're typically going to be going from Libya to Italy um, on the Mediterranean. So that's a different route. So those are the two main routes. You have Turkey to Greece and Libya to Italy. And then you also have people coming through Spain also. So, and then of course we have people who are coming from other parts of Europe. So like we said, Kosovo and Albania are large parts of migration. So they're going to be crossing going into Serbia. I wish I had a map going into Serbia. And then from Serbia, they're going to go to Hungary. Just borders that, why does that make sense? And from Hungary, they're going to go wherever they want to go. So, um, basically when this started happening, when all these routes started being used and everyone, it started just ramping up and ramping up until 2015 when it like hit its like absolute max. Um, Europe basically became overwhelmed and they had to figure out how to solve this because first it's causing a humanitarian crisis because there's just so many people what do you do with that many people and how do you process them all how do you decide who stays and who doesn't how do you get how are they gonna have homes how they're gonna have jobs what what do we do and then also a political crisis because are you gonna be deemed a racist are you gonna if you like don't let them in are you called a racist we're gonna see that on the u.s mexico border all the time i would argue that racism plays a little to no role in this at all I'll, I'll explain why in just a minute, but a political crisis also because you, what are you, are you running on a platform of no migration, are running a platform of migration, what do you do in this situation? It's pretty much a nightmare to whatever side you're on because you want to have sympathy, but you also know that your own country is your responsibility and you can't just let an unlimited amount of people in without seeking consequences of that. So each country basically had to figure out how they're going to respond to this. So just one point I wanted to bring up quickly is people will play the racism card a lot and of course it's kind of hard to refute that because you just say no I'm not like I'm not racist what do you even say how do you prove that um so one thing that I saw in a documentary and I need to I need to shout her out I will shout out Lauren Southern on every episode I've shouted her out so many times in the first episode specifically you can go back and listen to like the last 10 20 minutes where i discussed the u.s mexico border crisis and i talked about warren southern's documentary on youtube american mirage it's totally free please watch it it's incredible made just opened my eyes to so much and it gave me so much content for my episode and helped me explain so much in a simple way but also in a nuanced way this is what I love about her and I have so much respect for her so I'm just gonna go on a tangent for a minute so I don't really care if you guys don't um care this is gonna be a long episode I already said it I'm not filtering myself on this one because this is important like she's an important figure so she used to be like one of those like very extreme like uh, just like going around and like just trying to like inst- like not instigate but trying to like ramp people up she'll like say something controversial or like do something controversial like just to like make waves and just to like get clicks um, especially with the company she was working for, and that was just very much, like, your typical, like, right-wing, conservative, like, red pill, you know, like, kind of annoying. I wasn't, like, online then. This was years ago. I wasn't, like, old enough to be involved in any of that, um, but I did see old clips, and I kind of got the vibe, and she'll admit it, um, but then she kind of, like, took a little hiatus, and there was, like, a big reason for that, which she's put, like, videos about, uh, explaining everything. It's not really important, And then she came back with such nuanced, mature opinions. She went through like a lot in her personal life. And she just came back with such nuanced, interesting takes on things where she's definitely a conservative, but she actually thinks about things and she actually explains things in a nuanced way. And it's 
just one of my favorite things about her is just how nuanced people will say she's the same and she's a racist white supremacist if you really look at what she's saying in her documentaries and I haven't watched all of them but every single one I've watched has been fantastic she is thinking about things and she's being honest and transparent and I love her so she put out a documentary on the 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 migrant crisis in Europe it's called borderless and I watched it and I like took notes it was so good and it just gave me so many interesting ideas and things I hadn't considered and it made me come out of this whole all this research with a different mindset and with like a really nuanced look at things and she even said at the end that she came out after this documentary with a different mindset than she thought than than when she came in with which again just is a test a test to her honesty and how she's really just trying to get an outcome right she's not trying to get a specific agenda she's genuinely just looking for answers so one point that she brought up that made me realize like kind of how the whole racism thing doesn't really hold water was she went to turkey right she went to one of these places where they see migrants passing through about to go to greece and she is interviewing people there and she just saw how they no one's really thinking you're thinking about like the european perspective or thinking about the migrants perspective no one's really thinking about what is that cross that what is that middle ground what is what about turkey what do the, what do the, tr- the turkish people think about this about seeing these migrants crossing through because they're not white right so they can't really i mean you could say they how can they be racist and that's a good argument to use against these libs because they'll say you can't be racist if you're black or if you're not white so these are turkish these are not white people so what do they think about it and just one clip that i'm going to play here of um these people and what one farmers and he was speaking for a lot of people he said what his view of these migrants was and just kind of shows how we aren't one how we aren't considering this perspective which was interesting to think about because i've never thought about that before and two how the racism argument doesn't really hold up because when you talk to them they aren't happy either so let's just play that before the crisis the villagers would go to their fields alone to tend their crops, but not anymore. Women especially. They can't go out anywhere alone. Now, they have to be escorted, even on their own farms. It all started in 2013. started slowly, with a few migrants passing here and there, but now, thousands pass every day. This village is on the coast where they launch the boats at the dead of the night. So it's where they wait. Then the crime started, and it got worse and worse. The traffickers started killing people they had arguments with, including the migrants. No one in the village could go to their own fields to pick olives. The traffickers had taken over the land, and it got worse. They turned up at my farm, pulled a gun on me, and told me they wanted the deed. They were acting like the Mafia. These people are dangerous. If you are filming here, you need to be careful. The traffickers disguise themselves as migrants. We are all frightened here now. I'm 55 years old, and now I have to carry a gun just to tend my field and animals. There are 20 more villages just like ours along this stretch of the coast. I would say one million people have passed through just on this coastline. You just hear one example of how this issue cannot just be boiled down into these are 
racist Europeans because it's never that simple and I would argue that plays no role but it's not that simple and here you just hear one non-white person this Turkish man speaking for so many Turkish people when he says that this is impacting them as well which we don't often think about so it just gave me a new perspective also there were some other aspects of that statement that I want to address later the violence and all that which we're going to discuss later because I didn't actually know when I wanted to put this clip in I just pulled a bunch of clips and I didn't know when I'm going to use them I figured whenever that comes up I'll use them so this is where this one came up so I think that's just something you should just keep in mind as we go through the rest of this episode um so now we need to talk about how did Europe respond to this crisis and again keeping in mind that anyone who is saying these are just racist Europeans trying to keep non-white people out of their country is just denying so much evidence and so much nuance that this whole thing again so desperately needs to be addressed with so right off the bat the EU kind of had an issue of agreeing exactly how to deal with this situation so it sparked a lot of different debates about social integration right integrating these immigrants into european society about culture about values about just security national identity these were all conversations that came up and no these all these different countries were not really able to agree on a common policy um so they one that kind of just calls into question how effective the eu is at solving problems um they couldn't agree on how to distribute the migrants between different countries and just again calls into question the eu's leadership and also as this was going on which we're going to discuss a lot later it caused the far right to gain because people were becoming very upset at just the lack of competence and they saw these far-right politicians saying things like that were kind of more anti-immigrant than you would see from other parties and that was attractive and we're going to talk about this later about about how the migrant crisis led to these right-wing nationalist parties to gain traction and that's where people can start to bring in the racist argument and I don't think it holds so much water but I do think I see where they're coming from but it's because of these policies when people when the EU just could not agree and was just everything was a mess and you saw someone taking a strong stance that's attractive right so just keep that in mind but basically in short they could not agree some of the things they did was they um through 2011 to 2017 so before the crisis and then the year after the crisis so kind of that window um, some five million first-time asylum applicants came in the eu in general accepted around half and then only a small percent were actually rejected most were either accepted or they were just pushed off and went into the the backlog which is mounting every single day out of all the countries germany accepted the most in sheer numbers per capita no that was sweden but just sheer numbers germany accepted the most we have um german chancellor who's very famous for her policy of just accepting so many migrants she um is kind of what she's known for i would argue that puts her in a bad light someone say that puts her in a good light but her basically this decision it was just called her open door policy she was just letting so many migrants in and we we're going to see the consequences of that later but i would argue that is the wrong approach but now the question is what do you do with those who you were not granted asylum right the ones whose applications haven't been processed yet or those who 
were outright rejected. That just creates kind of this population where they can't go back to their country they came from. Many of them are not willing to do that or they can't do that. And then they kind of just create this shadow population where we don't really know the numbers. They're just in Europe without any legal status, without any rights, just because they really have no legal right to be there. And there's some people who say we should expel them, which is, of course, very hard to even be able to practically do. And the EU, again, just has proven that they just can't deal with that challenge on this practical level. Um, but just focusing on those who even have been granted asylum, just so many have been taken into these countries, Germany, for example. Um, so then during the peak of the crisis in 2015, some EU countries actually just closed their internal borders, just did not let anyone in um, to stop the migrants from traveling within the EU. So even if they had already gotten into the EU and gotten into Europe, some countries said, don't come to us. And again, you have to understand that it's so much pressure from these leaders of what do you do in such a situation because you already have, let's say, a failing economy or poverty or you have all these different issues in your own country and then you just have people coming in just who are going to cause these problems like unemployment and just going to cause these problems to just be even bigger because then you just have more homelessness and you have more people who can't find jobs and you have to take care of your own people and it's such a hard thing we're going to discuss. But So right now we're just talking practically what they did. Um, so they would, um, so some of them just stopped the migration, the migration within different countries, between different countries. And then that was one thing that they did. And that though, the problem with that was closing with closing those borders was then the fear was that then if you're going to leave the international borders open, then more countries are closing their internal borders and where are those migrants who are allowed into the EU through those external borders but then there's no internal borders they can cross then what do, what do you do with them right if they're just kind of stuck in limbo that's kind of hard right so then the EU kind of said okay let's focus on strengthening our external borders and then keep the internal ones open so migrants who had already come in could then move around between countries but then the ones who hadn't gotten in yet we could keep them out to some extent right so that actually kind of caused a big drop in migration between 2016 and 2017 was just closing the borders. Guys, border security works. I know it's such a thing that no one likes to say it works, but it works, guys. People saying that the, the wall won't do anything and ICE won't do anything and border security is just useless. No, it serves a purpose, an important purpose and a necessary purpose, I would argue, for the security of a country. So... Guys, U.S., take notes. Close your borders. Have border security. And that cause was p part of the reason why there was a cause in th that there was a drop in migration between 2016 and 2017. Another reason was um, cutting off migration routes from third countries, places like Turkey, um, cutting off people from getting, from cutting off routes through Turkey, right? So, for example, um, the EU collaborated with, I guess, not really the right word, collaborated with Turkey. And basically, they said to Turkey, these migrants are coming through you, so we'll, we'll give you funds to help support those refugees if you keep them, right? So we'll give you rewards, we'll give you money to help support them, and we'll also give you other different kind of concessions if you hold these migrants and don't let them and are kind of strict on migrant smuggling and don't let them into our country. If they want to stay by you, we'll help you be able to support them. 
So people weren't sure if that was going to really hold, but it's actually held. And um, it's kind of been able to stop a lot of the migration from Turkey to Greece. It's kept a lot of those migrants in Turkey. Um, so this also kind of just highlights that there's kind of a lot of strategy with the EU collaborating with Turkey because Turkey is kind of that way to get in one of those main routes to get into the EU. So just kind of that relationship is very important, very important, and very interesting. Um, but it's also kind of Turkey, some human rights abuses, some government corruption and autocracy in the government. So like, is it good that we're collaborating with Turkey? Like, it's helping the problem, but it's also kind of, do we negotiate with these people? You know, like Turkey isn't like the best country when it comes to like all these different human, nothing like not the worst, but it's not the best. So like, it's just like a conversation we should be having. Um, another thing that they did was for sub-Saharan Africa, where again, like we said with sub-Saharan Africa, they're typically coming through Libya and going into Italy, so they boosted their relationship with these governments of countries like Libya to like strengthen their coast guard and be able to basically stop migration from Libya to Italy, which was again one of those big departure points, second only to Turkey to Greece. Which back then, now it's become more pop mainstream because of the the d- agreement between turkey and greece so now we're seeing the kind of rising popularity of libya to italy of that method um of migration but back then certainly this was the second most popular and also the most dangerous by the way and that was the route that this ship that we just discussed at the beginning was taking but anyway so basically they strengthened the help strengthen the libyan coast guard to then prevent these ships leaving libya to go to italy And the problem with that then is then these migrants then are kind of trapped in Libya and they're put in these camps and they're in good conditions and there's a lot of human rights issues there. So there isn't really an easy answer. And again, I'm not trying to like make any points yet. I'm trying to lay out a foundation for everything I'm going to say as we progress. And I know it seems like we're like already an hour in, but it's going to be a long one. I I already said that, but you have to just bear with me because we're going to get to some really interesting thing. I hope this is interesting. I think this is interesting. We're going to get to some interesting stuff. I'm like, I'm like sprinkling in different ideas, obviously, as we go. So just one quote that I would like to read. Altogether, migration pressures have cha- changed the EU's collective approach to foreign policy priorities, leading the, to an EU realist surge. Human rights concerns, formerly very important in settling setting European priorities, have receded as immigration as migration crisis brought home the impacts of globalization and political instability in the Middle East and Africa. These steps have come at great cost to the EU's reputation as a defender of humanitarian values. Let's quote from the National Interest, an article on this, which is just so interesting because it's like <sighs> The EU, okay, so let's say you ha- you argue that it's had a good humanitarian r- track record. Let's say you were to argue that, and then you're saying that their kind of strict approach that they were forced to adopt at the height of this crisis that caused this crisis to kind of be lessened, but that kind of was sacrificing their good humanitarian track record. So it's so hard because it's, at the end of the day, of course you want to help these people, but you also have your own country and your own border security to consider. And it's not its not an easy answer. There are no easy answers here. I think that's what we've established. So EU also started helping 
some of these poorer countries or some of these um, either these um, transit countries or people are coming through. Um, so places like Ethiopia, Niger, Nigeria, Mali, Senegal, and similar to that, they also, the EU external investment plan, basically their goal was to just raise a ton of money to invest or to like basically invest in these poorer countries or in these African countries where there's a lot of issues to basically what they call address the root causes of migration. So the idea is if you can help these people help, you know, end conflicts, help help like improve the economies of these countries you're addressing a root cause right because then they won't want to migrate they'll have a better life in their own country so that seems nice in theory but when you kind of realize that throwing money at a problem never solves the problem it really it doesn't really do much unfortunately um which is sad because you wish things would be that easy but I think we can look at any example of throwing money at a problem it does not work so what actually did which was kind of fascinating and again like included in this was trying to fight ISIS in Syria and Iraq which seems to make a little bit more sense but let's just focus on the money thing for a second just throwing money at these countries to help improve their economies help decrease migration make people happier and not want to leave the answer is it might actually exacerbate it because think about it if you can cause the quality of life in these countries to improve just a little bit with your billions that you're throwing out these countries um cause their economies to just increase just a little bit or cause their education just to increase a little bit you're eventually going to give people enough money that they're able to leave but not enough money that they would want to stay so you're giving them enough money where they're they're able to pay traffickers they're able to pay for everything they need for their journey but they aren't able, they aren't, they aren't stable enough to feel that they can stay, right? So you're actually making it worse because if, again, this is kind of sounds bad, but if they're really, really poor, some of the poorest people are not the ones coming in. And I don't think that's always the case, but I think a lot of the time, some of the poorest people are actually not able to be the ones that are coming because they don't have the money to pay traffickers, right? And Obviously, sometimes people who don't have enough money will then just owe traffickers, which is even worse because then they could end up being put into labor or sex trafficking just to pay their traffickers back, which we see so much on the U.S.-Mexico border. But um, you're basically giving them the money to pay these traffickers, which are you funding the traffickers? I don't know. Not really, but like it's something to consider. And then, but they aren't wealthy enough or they aren't in a stable enough environment that they feel they can stay. Eventually... If you cause their economy to grow enough, you can actually slow immigration, but that's going to take decades. This isn't just a quick fix throwing money at a problem, right? Um, Some of the research has suggested that migration starts to fall when a country's GDP per capita reaches about um, $11,000, and most African countries are nowhere near there yet, so... You might actually even be making it worse by just throwing money at a problem. In the long term, it might help. In the short term, it is not helping. So it seems that the best thing you can do is border security, border security, border security. So then let's talk a little more recent. In 2020, the European Commission, which is just an EU institution, they proposed a new pact on migration and asylum, which basically their goal was um, to have these new systems where they're, all the EU countries are going to kind of work together and work on relocating asylum seekers 
from the country where they're coming into to countries that will want to take them and then returning those who really have no right to be there and it's basically just based on everyone cooperating and supporting each other in this which is kind of hard at times right um so it just requires a lot of cooperation between the different countries so it hasn't worked so well as of now so um now it's talk 2022 where you're kind of seeing the numbers rise a little bit again where you saw they kind of started to fall it seems like things were sort of getting a little bit under control in like 2017 2018 2019 2020 2021 and now in 2022 things are kind of not going so well it seems these the, they have not been working enough working hard enough on stopping this and trying to regulate things the crisis seems to be ramping up again um, because nearly 1 million people have applied for international protection in Euro- the European Union in 2022, which again brings that level higher. It's only the only two years recently that were lower than that, that were higher than that were 2015, 2016. So the crisis hasn't reached the level of 2015, 2016 again, but it's getting high. So why is that? People are saying that, okay, the reason they weren't coming in 2020, 2021 was because of COVID and now that COVID is really basically done they're able to travel again so that's one so it's really just the amalgamation of three years worth of migration which is interesting point to consider also there's more conflicts in different countries more food insecurity and um, that is just something to consider so most again are coming in legally in this case with like visas or whatever but again it's still a lot of people to just grant asylum request to um and again if they have travel visas like how long are they staying it's it's a mess and then some are still coming through land and sea like through the balkans or the mediterranean which we discussed earlier so that is really just how the eu has dealt with it and how we see this crisis ramping up again now we're going to talk about some of the problems with the journeys like what are the dangers of it um what what are some of the dangers basically so we said this earlier but the most dangerous route for migrants is going to be the central mediterranean route which is the libya to italy route which is um where um most that ship from earlier came because these are very overcrowded ships these are not high quality vessels there's a lot of shipwrecks a lot of ships capsizing it's very very sad some numbers on that so in 2015 again you're going to see different numbers from different from different um sources but in 2015 it said that 3,771 migrants died in these types of ship capsizing in different ways in 2016 that number was 5,000 it seems and in the past couple years the number is lower but it's still an increase from um 2017 2018 and the years like directly following the crisis so that's kind of where we're at which kind of just again shows how the crisis seemed to start to fizzle a little bit but then ramped back up again in recent years so another issue with this is that the traffickers often do not have the migrants best interests at heart a lot of them are doing this for the money right? They, they want the money and that is the reason why they're trafficking migrants, why they're helping migrants get across these borders and across the Mediterranean. So just one example of this, this is the Reuters article. And here's my thing with all these articles is there's a lot of bias on both sides when it comes to these. So I knew that if I used only right-wing sources, I would just 
people would just be i mean like we have an audience but in theory people would say like you're just using right-wing sources all the data you're getting is biased because obviously a statistic is always disputed I just always think back to I remember there was like a debate we had a debate class one year in school and not a debate class we had like a part of the class that was a debate and I just remember one of the debates it ended up just being one statistic there and then the other side would just come back with their own statistic and statistics just because of the way they're collected can be very biased sometimes so I knew that if I only use right-wing sources or some of the some of the information can just be biased right like we're going to get into later are there this is one of the most hard most difficult things that I had to research are there no go zones which if you don't know what that is we're going to get into it later or are there not? And it was just yes versus no. It was so hard to find an objective answer. So I'm trying to use, if anything, more left-wing sources because then I can show, one, that there are some things that even the left will admit are issues, and two, because then sometimes I can pick them apart a little bit. So because I know if I go ahead and I use a nationalist website, I'm going to get the answer I want. So I wanted to challenge myself and also be very intellectually honest and nuanced so this is a writer's article I think people would say Reuters is not right-wing um so this Reuters article just kind of gives some examples about how the traffickers don't have the migrants best interests at heart so this article is called Europol sets up task force to target most dangerous human traffickers this is an article from 2019 from jet skis to yachts, traffickers are resorting to increasingly innovative ways to smuggle people to Europe, a senior Europol officer said on Tuesday as a police agency launched a task force to tackle lucrative trade. And then they say that criminal gangs are also becoming more violent toward migrants as they seek to maximize profits, right? So they're just trying to get money out of these migrants. And so there really is just showing how the EU is trying to fight against these traffickers who are just abusing these migrants for money says people involved in migrant smuggling are far from gentlemen trying to help other people get a better life they are criminals who will do everything to get their money they are ruthless um so just like going through this article which just kind of explains some different examples of this um it says that in one case last year investigators arrested a moroccan crime gang using jet skis to smuggle migrants to spain this is literally a gang being smugglers gangs not the best reputation for how they treat others so you have these dangerous people just trying to get money out of migrants they're coming across huddled together in small concealed compartments in vans and lorry some have died in traffic accidents the EU got more, Europol got more than 6,600 cases of migrants being smuggled in vehicles through the Balkans. Almost four-fifths were in very risky circumstances, just huddled in the back of a truck, right? More than 600 migrants have died trying to cross the Mediterranean in boats in 2019. It's, these are just death traps for these migrants in a lot of cases, according to these sources, where they're just so unsafe and they're just, they don't care how they don't care if they're if they get money for a person they'll bring them across so if they get money from a bunch of people way more than can fit in the back of their truck or on their ship or on their jet ski they're not going to say no because they're being paid in a lot of these cases these are not upstanding citizens so much of the time so much of the time these are gangs these are just traffickers who just want money and it's so sad so that's just kind of what this article discusses i recommend you reading it 
it's not such a long article. It just took me a few minutes to read. Um, also, according to the EU laws, if you're seeking asylum, you have to apply in the first country within the EU that you reach. So if you reach whatever the first country that you reach by land is, like whatever you reach, that's where you have to apply for asylum. So that's why so many refugees, if let's say they're they're in Greece or they get to Italy, technically, so they should have to apply to it for asylum in Italy, let's say. But they don't want to stay in Italy. So then be smuggled with a, tra- a trafficker will then smuggle them to a different EU country. And that's also unsafe conditions. Again, they're dying in traffic accidents because they're being stuffed in the back of vans where there's overcrowding and it's hot and it's so sad. And in 2015, 71 migrants were found dead in a freezer truck in Austria. How does this happen? It's because they don't care about the safety of the migrants. They care about the money. Migrants... Um, some other quotes from articles migrants tell us about the money they've paid but sometimes also the debts they still have to these traffickers one cruel tactic we've seen particularly with women is to send their her child across the sea first as a guarantee that the parents will pay up and come next the same mafia has branches on both sides of the sea outside their spanish class at the refugee center Badran and Sauron, the two people they interviewed chat about what they've left behind and what future the future might hold they a lot of times they'll send their kids over because then you're not going to leave your kid alone in Europe. So then that's a guarantee that the traffickers kind of use the child as collateral and say, okay, because I have your child now, then I know you'll come. The, the traffickers do not care. They are doing it for the money. They owe the traffickers money. And you know what happens when you owe someone money. It ends up just leading to so much sex and labor trafficking. So sad. Also, there's this is a little bit more controversial, a little bit more conspiracy floaty but i'll say it um the ngos an ngo again if like i'm trying to do this very introductory not not assuming any any like level of of knowledge about any of these ideas so an ngo is a non-government organization which is an organization not associated with any government that like is helping so a classic example would be doctors without borders right and they're helping people in different situations but the ngos many basically their main thing that they do in this crisis is they'll be on the seas on the mediterranean and if they see a migrant ship they'll then help those migrants and help bring them across into europe and they're going to end up in different immigration centers so the question one question you could bring up is are they helping who they think they're helping because we already discussed earlier that some of the poorest people are not actually the ones who are able to make it across because they don't have the money but i think definitely a lot of them are very poor um so you kind of have two schools of thought when it comes to ngos you have one, because Europe has tightened border security, the NGOs have to step in and help because Europe won't let them in. You have to have the NGOs come in and save everyone and then bring them into Europe themselves. And because Europe tightened security, that's very bad. So now you have to have these organizations come in and rescue migrants because they are stuck and can't get into Europe. Okay, so that's one approach. Um, they're saying basically that when something becomes more illegal, when you're tightening border security, making it more illegal people are just going to come anyway and it's going to be even more dangerous for them than the NGOs have to step in. I just want to mention my philosophy on that in general. The idea, it's such a flawed way of thinking that making something illegal just makes people do it in more dangerous ways. You hear very classically, you hear this argument with abortion. Making abortion illegal just makes women go seek abortions in more dangerous ways. But the idea is that if we are saying something is illegal because we want it to be illegal for a moral reason or for a practical reason. If we are saying that border security is something we value and that 
not letting a million foreigners into your country because you just don't have the resources for that. So instead, tightening border security, that if you're saying that is a moral thing and an important thing you have to do for your country, just saying let's make it legal just so that people don't risk their lives and do it dangerously, that's not the solution. Because that, and we see it with any time you try to legalize something, you think it's going to decrease it. No, legalizing just removes all the stigma around it. And it's not such a classic like way of putting it with the migration crisis. Not like there's stigma around migration, but people, if it's legal, you're more likely to do it. And that's it's such a flawed way of thinking that that making it legal will improve it. Making it legal, if you really believe that it's wrong, making it legal is the worst thing you can do. Um, we see it with prostitution or we see it with drug use. Making it legal removes the stigma and there's I could talk about like the prostitution and the drug use thing and the side effects of that that are horrific but I won't um because it's totally unrelated and we are already very far into this and I'm not anywhere near done um but um just that philosophy is very flawed so the other way of thinking um and also they're saying that the resources that governments would normally use to rescue migrants are being used instead to increase border security so they're saying the NGOs are very good that they're coming in Others say, and this is kind of a more extreme point of view, that the NGOs are bad because they're kind of working with the traffickers. They're basically assuring the traffickers that they'll have a way to get the migrants in, right? And they're basically, some would even say they're kind of directing traffickers, like traffickers know where the NGOs will be, so they know which routes to take the migrants, knowing they'll meet an NGO who will then rescue all the migrants, and then they'll get paid and everything. Um... And then there's another scandal related to this that has been disputed, but it was in Lauren Southern's documentary, again, Borderless, go watch it, um, where she talks to someone high up in one of these NGOs. This NGO was not involved in search and rescue, actually was involved in um, legal work. They were basically helping migrants get their asylum requests accepted, called Advocates Abroad, and basically what they according to when they had like an undercover camera and undercover mic and they basically secretly recorded a conversation between someone on Lauren's team and this woman very high up in Advocates Abroad and she basically explained how they coach migrants on how to say things how to show that they're oppressed so that they'll be accepted into Europe and then later they argued that no we don't tell them to lie it seemed from the clip that they were telling the migrants to lie to seem as vulnerable as possible to be let in so that's a more extreme approach. I'm not saying that for sure, but I'm saying definitely there is a possibility that the NGOs are either working with the traffickers or are incentivizing it or are telling migrants to lie. So that's another thing to consider is that the NGOs are also making money off of the crisis in one way or another. And again, we're trying to discuss here some of the ramifications of this journey and some of the different things the migrants will face along the way. So one of them is encounter these NGOs who will save them but who definitely maybe have some ulterior motives as well and that ulterior motive by the way is not just a monetary one or some kind of benefit in that regard it's also a political kind of end game because these NGOs are all ex- pretty much exclusively in this realm left-leaning and they're very much kind of openly for the idea that there should be less immigration restriction and we should have kind of this almost borderless Europe. So you kind of, again, see this ulterior political motive coming out where these are the people who believe that there should be more immigration and 
helping these as many migrants get into Europe as possible helps feed into that narrative and helps achieve that end goal. So the idea that they are free of info, free of bias and free of any ulterior motive, they're just saving the ones they find that they are, their goal is not to bring as many into Europe as possible. That's kind of being a little bit short-sighted. So that's just one other point I want to mention. There's also one example of this refugee camp where a lot of migrants get placed when they get stuck and can't get into Europe. Sorry, can't get further into Europe where they get stuck on the Greek island of Lesbos. So there's one very famous camp. It actually burned down a couple of years ago. Um, but before it burned down, it was the largest one. And it's called the Moria Refugee Camp. I just... It's such... You even... She put it... It was in Warren Sun's documentary. And I also just read a bunch of articles about it. It is just described as just the most terrible conditions. So I'm going to play a couple clips from it just so you get a sense. Then we're going to read a couple articles. So take a listen. We cannot compare between Moria and Yemen. You know, there is war and there is also here problems. Uh, and no safe here. This place is no safe. We escaped from uh, uh, our country because there is no safe. And we came here no safe also. So uh, no difference. No difference. Is it dangerous here? What what is what's dangerous about it? Lots of fighting. Do you regret leaving Afghanistan? Yeah. 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 You wish you stayed in Iraq. Do you wish you stayed home? Yeah. Why not? Did it cost you a lot to come here? One hundred. 1,200 euro. 1,200 euro to come here from Turkey? Yeah. For me, 500. Some people, uh, maybe 1,000. 1,000 euro? It's a business. I think it's a business. It's The camp is a business? Yes. But you're paying for a smuggler, huh? You're passing the, the borders. Almost your $2,000, dollars you're paying for each person. And where do you want to go to? After here? Yeah. Maybe to Belgium or Iceland. Belgium or Iceland? This makes uh, problems, you know. And uh, at the night, maybe they, maybe some people come kill you uh, while you are sleeping. Has that happened before? Yes, it happened. You know, many people kill and uh, hit it while they are sleeping. Food, food line. And are there fights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh my god. If you heard at the end there, when they were saying like, look, 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 that was, they were like showing her like their scars from where they had been stabbed. Like, it's just crazy that it's become so normal there. So anyways, just horrific. Let's read this article here. This is from um, Doctors Without Borders. You have confinement, violence, and chaos. How a European refugee camp is traumatizing people on Lesbos. So you have, um, currently, this is an article from, this was before the thing burnt down a couple of years ago. It's from 2018, burnt down in 2020, I think. So you have, currently, there are over 8,000 people crammed into a space designed for 3,000 in Moria. Their mental and medical, medical and mental health is being heavily compromised. There's violence, there's sexual violence, there's stabbings, things like that. Um, it's just totally inhumane, 
and there's currently at the time again it's burnt down now there were 72 people per functioning toilet 84 people per functioning shower that's way below like the recommended like humanitarian level that you're supposed to people are like supposed to be in conditions of to be considered humane it's horrific there's lack of humane living conditions and again you're just in this limbo of of just being stuck there not able to get further into europe and and not but also not wanting to go back to where you came from but some of them even regret their journey because of just the conditions they're put in you're they're just you see the mental and physical health is just deteriorating the other day this is a quote from a mental health activity manager who's at the clinic there the other day a young man who was a victim of sexual violence was brought was that's the typo was brought to the clinic by a friend in the midst of a psychotic breakdown he had severe post-traumatic stress disorder and was suffering from hallucinations, flashbacks, and noises from all around. He could not stop crying during the two-hour session. There's so much just dangerous things there. It's just so sad. Um, part of the reason people's mental health deteriorates so drastically here in Lesbos is that they come from traumatic, traumatizing experiences and reach Europe hoping for refuge and dignity, but what they find is the opposite. They're coming from a bad place and getting to an even worse place. They're Doctors Without Borders is getting 15 to 18 referrals a week from other NGOs for cases of acute mental health problems, including children. There's so, so much who they can't, even, so many cases they can't even treat. They don't even have the resources to treat. It's so sad. And just, I would recommend, I'm just scrolling through this article. There's so much here just to read about. But in the past four weeks, we've received an increase in the number of minors suffering from intense panic attacks, suicidal ideations, and suicide attempts. These are children. So sad. Um, there's so much here. I would just really scroll through that whole article and just see everything that it says there. Um, another story, a doctor's story inside the living hell of Moria Refugee Camp. This is an article from The Guardian. And again, these are not right-wing sources and again they would argue that because of this we brought them all into europe i would say this is just another aspect of a horrific situation that we need to discuss but it's just become a place of violence deprivation suffering and despair this is an article from a doctor there just explaining the experiences that they've had there they even it says here these thousands of vulnerable people spill out into the surrounding olive groves and makeshift tents which are elevated on wooden pallets to try to prevent the cold from the freezing ground seeping into their tired, aching bodies. 40% are children. It's so sad. There's stabbings because um, they're being, a lot of times, like, treated by medics who just were basically trained very briefly how to stop the bleed and not really trained properly. Um, women are going into labor, and you just have babies, like, four-day-old, sleeping in freezing tents, and again, I, I'm, I would really read this whole article if I were you. There's so much here. Their wounds are getting infected. It's just basically a place of absolute chaos. Um, a lot of violence. It's just, it's so sad. I, I would really just read through this whole thing. Um, just look at some of the stories here of what people experience. And if you look at pictures, you can just see. I'm, we're not looking at a picture of just so much just piles of garbage and it's really honestly just a nightmare um it's a nightmare honestly that's the only way to put it so that kind of concludes like the part 
one in a way I guess of this whole episode of just going through the journey different challenges that happen along the way obviously could have gone into a lot more depth but I feel like I got the basic points covered and obviously there were some like hints of the next part which is ramifications meaning like ramifications of the journey kind of like things that happen along the way are kind of similar but now what we're really going to focus on is we are going to go into the like more indirect ramifications what happens as a result of this um as a result of this migration guys i decided to break this podcast into two parts just for length's sake i don't want anyone to have to sit through a three-hour episode so make sure to tune in to the next episode which should be out right now about the ramifications of this kind of whole process in this journey um i think it'll be interesting so um please go listen to that if you want to find out the rest of my thoughts about this topic also make sure you know leave five star rating review follow me on spotify um what else um you can comment like a question in spotify now or a comment you can also email me a question if you want me to respond to it on this show prepare to turn right podcast at gmail.com we also have twitter and instagram now so i'm gonna put those in like the description of my podcast uh anything else uh make sure to tune into the next part um that's it bye guys thanks for turning right 